Moonrise is sponsored by Hunters on Amazon Prime Video. Inspired by true events, Hunters stars Al Pacino as the leader of a ragtag pack of Nazi hunters. Watch February 21st on Amazon Prime Video. Fortunately for the Allied cause, the enemy bid for victory came too late. With Allied penetration deep into Nazi territory, opposition crumbled. Rocket bases were overrun. The end was in sight. We left off with Nazi rocket engineer Werner von Braun secretly escaping to America, leaving behind Germany's powerful labs and factories. The dismantled warheads of V-2 rockets, their enormous metal combustion chambers, everything was abandoned as the Nazi regime crumbled. But before we follow Von Braun's escape to the United States, we need to pull back the curtain on another story that was playing out in parallel during World War II. This is the hush-hush story of a rocket engineer in the Soviet Union. While Germany gave Von Braun everything during the war, resources, fame, The Soviet Union gave its version of Von Braun next to nothing. Worse than that, the country set out to kill this key rocket engineer. And yet the Soviet scientist would find a way to rise from the ashes to become Von Braun's rival in the space race to come. with the Washington Post, and this is Moonrise. Devised by our, our thinkers, such as Konstantin Tselkovsky, and then built upon by such great designers as uh, Sergei Korolev. And this idea came into existence. In the course of my reporting, I went to NASA's headquarters in D.C. to meet with their chief historian, Bill Barry. We sat down in Bill's office, which is just stacked high with books and retro NASA paraphernalia, and we talked for a while, and I kept trying to get him to tell me secrets about the space race. And finally, he leaned in and pointed to a frame on his desk. That guy's in that picture to your left there? In the frame was a faded black and white photograph of a man. There was something foreign and distant about it, but his gaze in the photograph was so searing and close. It had caught my eye ever since we sat down. That's Sergei Korolev. He's the guy who was the genius behind the Soviet space program. I had never heard of him or... Maybe I had somewhere, I wasn't quite sure. 
Like so many things from the Cold War, Sergei Korolev's story had long been buried. I was staring at the photograph, waiting for Bill Barry to tell me more about Sergei Korolev and about the hidden details of the Soviet side of the space race. Part of the reason why this, the story, which is the U.S.-Soviet dynamic and this other stuff, hasn't come out is because it's, it's a hard story to explain without like, going into all these weird rabbit holes. Yeah. The lid came off when the Soviet Union came apart because all this stuff was classified. Um, and uh, you know, I, I actually went into an archive, uh, and it was Russia. I was doing research over there with them, and I went in to ask some questions about things. And, uh, and the deputy director said, what are you doing here? And I said, well, I want, to, I want to talk to you about the N1 rocket. And he goes, there was no such thing. And I said, there's a picture of one on the wall right outside your office there. I just saw it while I just walked by it. There was no such thing. There was such a thing. In the United States, we had the Saturn V rocket that Werner von Braun built to send humans to the moon on Apollo. In the Soviet Union, they had the N1 and it was designed by the man in the photograph on Bill's desk, Sergei Korolev. The Soviets were actually very close to beating the Americans. The moon race was actually like down to the wire, and nobody knows that. The maestro behind the Soviet successes was Korolev. But it was also because of a twist in his story that the Americans were ultimately able to get to the moon first. All of that information about Korolev, about the Soviet side of the space race, was kept top secret for a really long time. In fact, it wasn't until after Korolev's death that the Soviet Union officially acknowledged that he ever existed. Much of the details are still shrouded in mystery, as we can tell from Bill's story of going to the Russian archive. I left Bill's office that day feeling this urge to go deeper down the Cold War rabbit hole that he had opened up for me. I went and got a bunch of dense books on Soviet space history and tore through them for any details I could find about Korolev. I started piecing his story together. One source that was really useful was the Red Rocket's Glare by space historian Asif Siddiqui. Sergei Korolev's saga in some ways was the inverse of Werner von Braun's. These were two men with dreams of the moon, two men who went to work on their country's missile programs, two men who without ever meeting each other would race to space. But where von Braun was lavished with resources and fame in Germany and then also in the U.S., Korolev was battered and invisible. It's like these two men were made of the same cosmic dust, but their lives played out so differently. For all the archival tape that we have of Werner von Braun, almost nothing exists of Korolev. Решить вопрос об осуществлении первого 
all we could find was this one scratchy little clip of him talking about the first man's spaceflight on Russian television. So, I will have to tell his story for you, and you will have to picture him. Come with me. Let's spin halfway across the planet from the United States to Moscow. Sergei Korolev was a boy growing up in the Ukraine without a father. He was an adolescent when Vladimir Lenin led the Russian Revolution in 1917. He was a teenager interested in science as communism was taking root in the Soviet Union. Korolev had particularly fallen in love with gliders and the idea of flight. And he joined up with a group of aviation enthusiasts who were building rocket engines for fun. They were trying to push the bounds of how fast and how high these gliders and planes could go. The group's leader was a man named Friedrich Sander. Sander was older than Korolev, sort of a father figure, and he read lots of science fiction and he dreamed of going to space. He had even named his daughters Astra and Mercury after the stars and the planet. His mantra with this group was onward to Mars. And he ended up turning Korolev from someone who was simply interested in flying to someone who was excited by the much wilder ideas of space travel. Even though Sander was sort of the spiritual leader of this group, Korolev pretty quickly became a more effective logistical leader. He would offer up his home as a meeting spot, and the young men would even melt their own silverware to make parts for the rockets. In other countries, you've got similar sort of activities. This is Roger Lanius, former chief historian of NASA. The German rocket society gets developed as well during the same time frame. That's where Werner von Braun got his start. The Werner von Brauns, the... Sergei Korolev's, they are initially excited by the prospect of exploring space. But like with von Braun, Korolev had to start working with the military in order to continue to pursue his passion. Now, an interesting thing to note is that the USSR was initially ahead of other countries in many ways. First of all, a Russian man named Konstantin Tsiolkovsky had already developed a theory in 1903 that scientists today consider the first documented proof that getting to the moon was scientifically possible. Tsiolkovsky mapped out a plan for how you could use liquid fuel and a series of combustion chambers to power a rocket into space. This was more than 20 years before Robert Goddard's famous rocket experiments in America, and before von Braun's mentor, the German scientist Hermann Oberth, published all of his theories. Sokovsky's breakthroughs didn't get attention outside the Soviet Union, but inside the country, he became pretty famous, and he inspired a lot of young Russian men like Sander, and then by association Korolev, to get interested in space. So fast forward to the early 1930s. 
Joseph Stalin's communist government has offered funding to Korolev's amateur circle of aviation enthusiasts. Propulsion technologies could have a number of military uses. That funding transformed their group into a secret state-sponsored rocket research institute. It was the first of its kind in the world. But that doesn't mean it got tons of funding. They were upgraded to operating out of a freezing cold cellar in Moscow. Still, Sander and Korolev must have been ecstatic. Here was a chance to spend their lives working on the dream of flight. When the opportunity permitted itself to build a rocket, they're willing mostly to agree to do that, partly because they're patriotic, but more than that, they want to build the rockets because all these people are sort of jazzed by the idea of getting off this planet. The military purpose, I mean, they recognized in the back of their mind, yes, you can use this for other purposes, but that was not their primary focus. For much of the 1930s, they worked on developing rocket technology for the Red Army. So things like jet engines that could power planes beyond just the use of propellers. But it didn't work out as they had dreamed. The conditions had been hard. The accomplishments hadn't been big yet. And Sander in particular had completely worn himself down. He was so poor that Korolev would secretly buy him lunch. And he was so sick that Korolev finally took some money out of the group's funding to send Sander off for treatment by the sea. But while there, he died of typhus. Supposedly the last letter that Sander sent to Korolev ended with these words. Forward, comrades, and only forward. Raise the rockets higher and higher, closer to the stars. But they just couldn't. While Germany was now revving up its investment in rockets, the Soviet Union suddenly ground its efforts to a halt. Stalin, Zinoviev, and Kamenev force Trotsky into exile. Then Stalin overrules his two associates and ends the new economic policy. From 1936 through 1938, about 750,000 people were executed in the Soviet Union under Stalin, though the numbers were so big that there's still no decisive count. In some provinces, as much as 4% of the population vanishes. This was called the Great Terror. At first, Stalin targeted members of his political opposition, but then his paranoia really exploded and he started ordering mass executions of anyone who might be an enemy of the state. Well over half of the top communist leadership and thousands of lesser officials vanish, as do most of the army officers. One of his biggest concerns was the Red Army. Stalin became convinced that his own military leaders were out to get him. So tons of them were executed. Then, since Korolev's rocketry group was getting its funding and support through the army, Stalin's eye eventually turned their way. He didn't trust what they were doing and where their allegiances lay. Korolev wasn't the head of the program at the time, but he had a prominent position. One by one, his colleagues disappeared. 
they would be arrested at night in their homes. Then, in many cases, they would be taken to an execution site and shot by the secret police. Korolev's bosses disappeared. His friends disappeared. His close colleague and peer, Valentin Glushko, disappeared at the end of March. Korolev and Glushko were friends and rivals. They had similar dreams of space, similar childhoods growing up in the Ukraine. They had similar roles in the rocket laboratory. But Glushko had thrown Korolev under the bus while he was trying to save himself during an interrogation with the secret police. Korolev knew that. And he also knew that once Glushko was gone, he was going to be next. It was only a matter of time. Just a couple months later, on a June evening in 1938, Korolev walked home through the streets of Moscow at twilight. He had stayed late working on rocket projects, despite the fear and emptiness at the Institute. As he wound his way through the dark streets, he might have thought of his daughter Natalia, who was three years old and was staying with her grandmother that night. He picked up a baguette and a newspaper. Then he joined his wife for dinner in their tiny studio apartment, not far from a bend in the Moskva River. She told him she had noticed two strangers outside. During the time of the Great Terror in the Soviet Union, that was like seeing the Grim Reaper. They made dinner, they ate together, lingered. A summer night in the dark city listening to scratchy melodies on the phonograph. Sure enough, agents at the door. His turn to die. But not immediately. They abducted Korolev. Threw him in prison. Broke his jaw. He knew that prison usually wasn't the ultimate fate of his colleagues who had been charged with the same made-up crime of sabotaging their country. But what could he do? I mean, how could you possibly prove your innocence when the state was set on exterminating you? He scrawled letters to his wife and letters to the secret police, the courts, anyone in power he could think of. But his letters didn't matter. By now... Four of his colleagues had filed a false report saying that Korolev was part of an anti-Stalin effort. It seemed they had all gone from these beautiful dreamers to these mice who could only care about self-preservation. He was facing certain death. The plan had been to execute him on September 27, 1938 along with a lot of other enemies of the state on Stalin's list. We know this because that list was finally declassified in 1999. But at the last minute, the plan changed. 
For some reason that's still unclear, instead of a single shot in the head like many of the other scientists, Korolev was sentenced to a slow death. He was shipped off to a far, desolate, northeast sliver of the country to work in one of the most notorious gulags in Siberia, the Kalima gold mine. Many of the prisoners in this work camp died brutal deaths there only after a couple months, if not killed by guards or by starvation or exhaustion, then by the absolutely freezing Arctic winters, one of the coldest places on planet Earth. Korolev lost his teeth from scurvy. His once plump, youthful face was sunken and scarred. His body was not much more than bones. After about six months, an official note arrived. Korolev could leave the gulag. He had to find his way back to Moscow immediately so his case could be re-examined. Re-examined. So there was hope. He might get to see his wife and his daughter again. Maybe the government had even realized that he was innocent and that he had just wanted to build rockets for his country. The trip back to Moscow was not going to be easy. It was winter in Siberia, and he was already on the verge of death. But he walked and he hitched rides nearly 400 miles to get himself from the prison camp to the nearest port. When he got there, he found out that the most recent ship to make the crossing back to the mainland killed more than 700 people on board when it sank in the icy waters. So what did he do? He got on another ship attempting the crossing anyway. He was so sick and starved and frail and frozen that when the boat finally reached the other side, the doctors examining the passengers pronounced Korolev dead. But somehow, he revived himself enough to crawl onto a train for the 5,000-mile journey that would take him the rest of the way back to Moscow. He looked out the window at dense pine forests covered in snow, at mountains and then treeless plains, then the dark depths of Lake Baikal, the fighting of Nazi Germany, the rockets that were being built by golden child Werner von Braun, that was far off in the distance. All he saw and knew was this great expanse of the Soviet Union. Finally, Korolev made it to Moscow. He was broken, hollowed out, but he had survived. He walked into his retrial, hope twinkling in those deep hollows of his eyes. The verdict? 
actually. He had to spend the next eight years in prison at a different gulag in the Arctic. Forget his wife and daughter, forget rockets and spaceflight, forget the moon and the stars. Everything had fallen apart. He was to die a prisoner, alone, in the cold clutch of planet Earth. meets an enemy who will stand up to his war machine. The Russian army, well-trained and prepared, a people united and ready to make real sacrifice. World War II was now in full swing in Europe, and Stalin's mass murders continued on Soviet soil. Sergei Korolev's dreams of Soviet glory, rockets in space, all of his early achievements and promise Everything just seemed to have gone horribly wrong. But before Korolev was shipped off to die at that second frozen gulag, a letter changed his fate. Not a letter he wrote himself. Get this, some other aviation designers who had also been sentenced to death had joined together to make a last-ditch effort to save their lives. What they did is they wrote up this very smart proposal to the secret police that said if they were kept alive, they could use their rocketry skills to create weapons for World War II. Wouldn't that be useful, better than killing them? Their argument worked. The Soviet Union decided that instead of shooting these engineers or sending them off to the gulags, they would create special prisons, sharashkas where these scientists would work to develop new war technologies. They wrote up a list of which scientists could go there, and the government added Korolev's name to that list. The secret prison laboratory he was sent to was about 500 miles east of Moscow in the city of Kazan. And you're not going to believe this. His boss there ended up being Valentin Glushko, that old colleague and rival of Korolev's who had disappeared right before him from the Rocket Institute, the one who, out of desperation, had turned the agents on to pursuing Korolev. Glushko was somehow also still alive. They were told just to focus on making quick, small improvements to what was already in the Soviet Union's war arsenal. There was very little room for the big, innovative projects that Korolev had originally hoped to do. The country was in the thick of World War II, and it couldn't waste time on scientists' dreams. They just needed weapons. The, the, the Soviets didn't have the time or the resources to develop a ballistic missile. Nobody had developed a ballistic missile. This is Mike Neufeld of the Smithsonian's National Air and Space Museum. What the Soviets were working on, all of this were small rockets with a few hundred pounds of thrust, you know, at most. 
Korolev worked in that secret prison for the remaining years of World War II. And toward the end of the war, he finally started to realize what had been going on in Germany with rocketry that whole time. While Korolev and the Soviets were working on these tiny battle rockets, Werner von Braun and the Germans were building the V-2 ballistic missile. Let me put it another way. Korolev was stuck working on basically firecrackers with a few hundred pounds of thrust. Von Braun's V-2s had about 55 thousand pounds of thrust. I mean, when it came to rocketry, by the end of the war, Germany had just left all the other countries far behind. At the time, the U.S. and the Soviet Union, though they didn't understand all the technology behind it, but they recognized that what had been developed in Germany was something that they sort of yeah. needed for their own programs. At the end of the war, German technology became desirable. I mean, neither side really understood what the Germans were up to until 1943. Uh, and that's when the first sort of reliable intelligence came out about the fact that the Germans are developing a big rocket, which was a very exotic technology for World War II just extremely futuristic. Down from the skies over England, it smashed. You're a citizen of southern England, and it's a matter of life and death. Your life and your death. You're a roof spotter or any kind of spotter, and there's nothing you can do except watch out for them and pray. Of course, the Germans also developed the world's first cruise missile, the V-1, which is called Buzz Bomb. So the Germans had developed a cruise missile, a ballistic missile. They developed jet fighters, although we also had jet fighters. And so the end of the war was kind of a preview of the Cold War. Many of the Cold War technologies, the jet aircraft, the cruise missile, the ballistic missile, and the atomic bomb all appeared in the last year of World War II. And, and they were all sort of precursors of, the, of future wars. And naturally, all the powers wanted to see what the Germans had. So as the war came to a close and the Nazi regime crumbled, other countries swooped into Germany to see what they could steal from the wreckage. You know, they had developed these particular exotic things that we were interested in, in getting a hold of an understanding. And with that, of course, we got interested in taking the people, you know, and capturing von Braun and some of the others and bringing them over here. And the French did the same, and the British and the, and the Soviets all began rounding up experts at the end of the war, partly to just interrogate them, and partly they concluded that they needed to take some of them back to their home countries and, 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 and work with them and try to get to understand them. In late spring of 1945, at the war's end, Americans swept through the Middleburg, the underground tunnels where von Braun's V-2 rockets were being produced. They saw the gas chambers and the emaciated prisoners, and they carted off tons and tons, hundreds of tons, 
of V-2 rocket parts and equipment, and they shipped it to the United States to examine and duplicate. Right after they left the area, the Soviet Union's investigators arrived to pick through the debris as well. The Red Army also seized the island where von Braun had originally started production on the V-2 rocket. It was in northern Germany along the Baltic Sea. They searched the bombed-out labs for secret blueprints, rocket parts, and more scientists they could capture or recruit to their side. And one of those Soviets sifting through the rubble was Sergei Korolev. After six years of forced labor, Korolev was freed from his prison lab at the end of the war so he could help recover the rocket technology in Germany. It was supposed to be a short stint, but Korolev would end up staying there much longer, taking over facilities and reviving them under Soviet command. When Korolev visited von Braun's original production site on that German island, he passed the old gas plant that powered the missiles. Then he climbed the remains of a V-2 rocket, pulling himself up to stand on top of its big metal combustion chambers. Pieces of the world's most incredible rocket were underneath him. And there it was, the rumble of a dream again. It was a September day, and the Baltic Sea air brushed against his double-breasted trench coat. He pushed one hand into a pocket and curled the other into his sleeve. His deep-set eyes peered out from beneath a wool visor cap at the ruins around him. His jaw was permanently damaged from his abduction, his body ravaged by time in the gulag, but the softest lift of a smile crossed his face. Someone snapped a photograph. The Americans may have snuck away with valuable loot and with plans to coddle wunderkind von Braun, but the Soviet Union had possession of the missile labs and the factories themselves. East Germany was theirs now. It was the end of World War II and the beginning of the Cold War, a race to control the most powerful technology on the planet. Von Braun was gone, but the puzzle pieces of his rocketry were right there for Korolev to put together. It was time to get to work. On the next episode of Moonrise... Mysterious objects crash in the desert, atomic horror stories are flying off the shelves, and Von Braun is secretly working on rockets in America that will get us to the moon. 
Rise is a Washington Post audio podcast. It's the result of the incredible work of amazing producer Bishop Sand, editor Dennis Funk, project coordinator Allison Michaels, art designer Courtney Kahn, and director of audio Jess Stahl. Our podcast launch event was hosted by the Adler Planetarium in Chicago. Subscribe to Moonrise on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify. You can also find it on the Washington Post site at WashingtonPost.com slash Moonrise. Many thanks to the great experts who appeared on this episode. Bill Barry, the chief historian of NASA, Roger Launius, a former chief historian of NASA, and Mike Neufeld, a senior curator at the National Air and Space Museum. Also, I want to particularly acknowledge the work of Asif Siddiqui. He's an expert on the Soviet space program, and his book, The Red Rocket's Glare, was an incredible source of detail about Sergei Korolev's life and provided the basis for much of this episode. Archival recordings came from VGTRK Vesti News, from Critical Past, from NASA, and from the Russian History Audio Archive of the Wilson Center's Kennan Institute. I'm Lillian Cunningham, the creator and host of Moonrise. Thanks for listening, and we'll be back next week with Chapter 5. The devastation you see here was caused by the explosion of the bomb above this zero point. Only the strongest buildings are left standing, and they are gutted.